Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Log Talk Radio.
broadcasting live to billions of people. Camels on the streets dragging who we meet and call this liberty. Out with, uh, with a little bit of 
discussion about kind of what we're going on, what we're going through right now in America. I think that uh, I think that our current situation uh, is is no different uh, in many ways than uh, than what we have been through before in America, and uh, and that's not good. Uh, at the beginning of our nation's history, uh, we had one of the patriots uh, that wrote a uh, that wrote a pretty uh, detailed treatise on on what the colonists were going through. Uh, his name was Thomas Paine, and you'll probably remember him for his most his most uh, well known pamphlet, which is what they were called at the time, pamphlets, which was called Common Sense. And the Common Sense pamphlet uh, started out with an introduction. And I want you to think about this. I'm going to read the introduction, but I want you to think about this for a minute because it's very important. <clears throat> this is from the, the uh, uh, Thomas Paine uh, common sense and this is from the introduction and uh, listen I also uh, would would challenge you guys to get your to just to put Thomas Paine common sense uh, into your Google search engine hit it go to the uh, the document and read through it I think a lot of times folks think that uh, the stuff that was written uh, 236, 37 years ago is old hat, but I guarantee you it's not. All right, this is uh, the first paragraph from the introduction. Thomas Paine writes, Perhaps the sentiments contained in the following pages are not yet sufficiently fashionable to procure them general favor. A long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right and raises at first a formidable outcry in defense of a custom. But the tumult soon subdues, subsides. Time makes more converts than reason. As a long and violent abuse of power is generally the means of calling the right of it in question, and in matters too which might never have been thought of had not the sufferers been aggravated into the inquiry. And as the King of England hath undertaken in his own right to support the Parliament and what he calls theirs, and as the good people of this country are grievously oppressed by the combination, they have an undoubted privilege to inquire into the pretensions of both and equally to reject the usurpations of either. That's, that's pretty heady stuff. 
a long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right. This is, I don't think that you could more perfectly describe uh, a large amount of the problems that we face today uh, being covered by this sentence. A long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right. That's not to say that that makes it right. It's not to say that a long habit of not thinking a thing wrong makes it right. It doesn't. It just means that a lot of times people have been told certain things are a certain way, and after a while, they they have kind of come to the opinion that that it's right because it's been that way, uh, and especially if it's been that way for so long. <clears throat> Something being a certain way for a long time doesn't make it right. Uh, I want to... Uh, I'd also like to point you guys... Uh, in uh, the direction of uh, the Sipsy Street Irregulars. <clears throat> and uh, this is over at uh, Sipsy Street Irregulars.blogspot.com. Just Google Sipsy Street and, uh, and it'll take you to it. You'll get to it. <clears throat> uh, the, the folks there. Uh, I believe I, I believe are the folks that originally coined the term three percenters, and uh, <clears throat> they uh, they describe the three percenters this way. This is the three percent catechism. <clears throat> These four principles: moral, strength, physical readiness, no first use of force, and no targeting of innocence are the hallmarks of the 3% idea. Anyone who cannot accept them as a self-imposed discipline in the fight to restore the Founders' Republic should find something else to do and cease calling themselves a 3%er. There was a recent article on the blog post there that uh, was titled, When is Enough Enough? And... I think that this is also a very important question. Now, realize, uh, and let me make sure that uh, everybody understands this, that uh, at no time, uh, at no time uh, during the show or, or anything that I write, am, uh, am I trying to uh, foment uh, any type of violent revolution? Uh, I would like folks to consider revolution, but I'm not uh, trying to advocate uh, uh, armed revolution, uh, at least not until it's called for by uh, by our Constitution, uh, by the, the articles that have founded this nation, uh, which tell us very, in very plain uh, English, that if at at any time, if our government ceases 
to be a government that represents us, uh, that is, is not only our, uh, our right to replace it, but our duty. So, so take that, uh, take that, uh, as, as what it is. <clears throat> the article, uh, over at uh, Sipsy Street, talks about the German Republic and uh, and what went on during Hitler's rise to power. And uh, the you know when we think of the Germans in World War Two, we think of uh, uh, we think of uh, everybody there, uh, of all the folks in Germany, all being Nazis, all being responsible uh, for the, uh, the the hell that went on. But that's not the way that it started. Uh, the and the actual the actual name of the article. Let me get this to you right. It's called "Where to Draw the Line." Not winning enough, enough. That, that was basic. That's that's the title that I took from it. But the actual uh, the actual name is "Where to Draw the Line." And what it talks about is that during the uh, during Hitler's rise, the uh, the folks in Germany, uh, a major part of them. <coughs> Actually saw what uh, what was getting ready to happen. They saw the evil that was beginning uh, to manifest itself, and they dev- they uh, they organized a group of patriots uh, under the flag of the Reichsbanner, and uh, these guys were sworn to defend the republic. They were sworn they they had all sworn oaths to defend the Weimar Republic. And they had plenty of guys to do it. They had a large force. They had uh, they had uh, they were they were ready to do it. They were a very hardcore group. Uh, but the problem was that uh, the plan that they had was that if Hitler tried to take over the uh, the Weimar Republic. He had tried to take over Germany uh, by uh, by staging a coup. Uh, it was ready to go, and they had a plan that they had uh, uh, that they had ready to go. I mean, it was a very uh, very detailed plan. Uh, they had worked it out uh, down to the uh, all of the details. Uh, they were going to be able to obtain and distribute enough weapons that they could crush the Nazis. Uh, the only thing is that they weren't going to act on their own. They weren't going to. Uh, they weren't going to to act without a call from the leaders of the country. Uh, they they thought that if they if there were individual acts or or uh of single acts 
uh, would would actually come to grief and maybe even uh, cause more harm or, or or actually compromise the the whole idea of this when it did come. Uh, they thought that if if they if Hitler tried to take over and uh, stage a coup and take over the government, or if the government itself asked them to help, then they would. The only problem was Hitler didn't he didn't do it all at once in a coup, and the government never asked for their help. Instead of uh, doing the whole thing, instead of staging a coup with his his brown shirts and uh, and taking over the government all at once, Hitler instead uh, initiated a, a kind of a long succession of uh, of legal battles and uh, and kind of legaled himself uh, into a position of power. And because the plan that they had was to stop him from taking over in a coup, and the plan, and which never manifested, uh, they nothing happened. They didn't do anything. And once Hitler did come into power, he started hunting these guys down, and uh, he started crushing this movement. And without the leaders. Without any formal request from the government, this whole thing folded. This was this was a group of hardcore patriots who had sworn to defend the republic. They were going to be the guardians of the republic. Because the order never came from the government, and because their plan was to uh, to rise up and crush Hitler and the Nazis when he staged a coup, and the coup never came, they uh, they didn't do anything. They, uh, uh, of course, the German the German folks have always been very loath. Uh, they've been very loath to do anything without. Uh, without orders uh, and pretty much incapable of acting without them. Uh, And I'll read you a paragraph out of it here. Because the Germans, wholly indoctrinated in obeying orders, were incapable of acting without them. Because there would be tyrants represented the government, in quotation marks, and cloaked their wolfish actions in legal sheepskin because their own leaders could not or would not give the order. They all ended up in concentration camps, leaders and followers, without ever having struck a blue or firing a shot. I'm reminded again of Boyd's moral, mental, physical dynamic by this observation of Allen's. This situation where even heroism was denied the men of the democratic left, came about in no small measure because of the failure of the social democrats to understand the nature of Nazism. Just as their basic premise in the years before Hitler came to power 
was at the erroneous assumption that the Nazis were essentially uh, pushists who could not possibly attract a mass following. By pushists, they mean uh, uh, like somebody who tried and, and take over a violent, uh, a violent or forceful takeover of the government. Uh, they could not possibly attract a mass following. So their basic premise after Hitler came to power was the equally erroneous assumption that his would-be government, similar to the others, that, that his government would be a government similar to the others of the Weimar period. And that because of their inability to see the enemy for what he really was, and if there was an enemy who delighted in shouting his attention to the rafters, it was Hitler... They went straight from the awkward stage to the concentration camps without ever firing a shot. All right. What I just read to you was just from the uh, from the blog post, Where to Draw the Line. Uh, that's back from uh, September 17, 2014. <laughs> uh, I urge you to read this. I urge you to, uh, I urge you to, to put Sipsy Street... Uh, on your favorites, and take a look at this, because uh, there is a lot of good information uh, that's coming out of this blog post. Uh, so, so I'll go back to the initial thing that brought this out, the first paragraph in Thomas Paine's Common Sense, and that is a long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right. Because something's been going on for a long time doesn't make it right. And then I'll follow that up with the the Sipsy Street blog, which is where to draw the line. The guys uh, from the Reichsbanner, they had the power. They were true patriots of the Weimar Republic. They had the power. They had the plan. They had the ability to obtain the weapons. They they could very possibly have crushed Hitler and the Nazis. What happened? The phone call never came. The, the plan was set to go off when Hitler staged a push like he did uh, at the very beginning of his career, the beer hall push where you know, a bunch of his buddies came in and they decided they were going to take over the country uh, right then and there. And uh, several of them got shot, and Hitler went to prison for quite a while, where he wrote Mein Kampf. He wrote down everything he was going to do, and then he did exactly what he said he was going to do in the book. They are waiting for him to make his next push and uh, attempt a coup on the government, and they were going to crush it. But that's the only plan they had. So what is our plan? Right now we have, I would dare say we have millions of folks who call themselves patriots. Within those millions, we have uh, tens of thousands. And the number is growing. Who call themselves three percenters? And... And of those three percenters, uh, there's probably a good number who would actually who would actually do something. But when are they going to do something? 
where is where do we draw the line? Where do we where do we say at at this point? Well, we won't go anymore. At at if they make a law, if they announce and create a law that that makes it illegal uh, to make uh, political speech uh, against candidates that is in direct opposition to our First Amendment, if they try to do that, well, that's that's our line. That's the line. That's where we're going to do it. Kind of late for that. <clears throat> if they try to come and take away our guns, then that's where we're going to do it. Well, I, you could you could kind of say it's almost too late for that one. And they haven't made any mass attempts to... Uh, to confiscate firearms from the American public, but they they have certainly uh, they have certainly done a good amount of it with uh, over forty thousand laws on the books right now covering firearms and uh, and more occurring every day. <clears throat> I don't. I'm not sure that that we're ever going to have to worry about uh, about somebody coming and trying to make uh, a full-on confiscation. I think what it looks like right now to me is that we have positioned ourselves uh, so that we will experience and die of the death of uh, a thousand cuts. Uh, looks to me like that's where we're going right now. We're 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 lining up to experience the death of a thousand cuts. Uh, we're making sure that uh, they're making sure that uh, we're slowly, inch by inch, uh, uh, regulating uh, all of our firearms. Uh, that they are uh, very slowly but surely. Uh, doing confiscations uh, under the guise of other titles. Uh, and and so where where is it exactly that we're going to draw the line? What is the thing that the that they would have to do that would make you grab your go bag and, and say that's it. Uh, we're going to we're going to block the roads. We're going to uh, uh, we're going to nullify the government because because here's the problem. You know, if there is if there is no plan, if there is no line, then things just continue on like they are right now. I mean, you guys have heard me talk quite a few times about uh, about rust, about rust and steel, and how it's it's really hard to get people excited about rust. If the government came out tomorrow and said, "All right, everybody, we're sending the trucks out at 8 a.m. We want you to be uh, standing at the uh, by your mailbox." 
with your firearms. We're going to be driving by and picking them up. And if you don't, then uh, we're going to hit. You're going to hit your house. We're going to bust the doors down. And we're going to throw in flashbangs and start shooting. <clears throat> then, then hey, everything. That's a very easy decision to make there. Now, of course, a lot of people would say, "Okay, I'll be there. I'll, I'll do it." But I'm I'm also sure that enough wouldn't that that would be the spark that ignited this thing. But they're not going to do it that way. They're just going to keep making little, little cuts that uh, that doesn't expose any arterial blood. It's just going to slowly weep as you walk along. As our constitution makes one step to the next, it'll make a squishy sound and leave a bloody footprint. Thing that's screaming for a trip to the emergency room or or for anything to be done in a rush situation because it's just a few cuts. It's something you can put a Band-Aid on it. That'll fix it. The same way with rust. You know, I've told you guys uh, many times before that if you uh, if you live close to the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, and you got a call from your neighbor and they said, hey, uh, there's a there's a bunch of terrorists headed to the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, they got guns and they uh, and school's about to let out. I think all the school buses are, are going across the bridge right now. You jump in your truck, you call all your buddies, uh, even if they didn't get there. You probably buy it. If you'd be like me, even if you were by yourself, you'd take on uh, 50 truckloads of terrorists. It doesn't matter because because your goal is to protect your fellow citizens protect those school buses or kids, right? It's like it's without, you don't even need to think about it. You know what you're going to do. Almost everybody would, would do the same thing, even the guys that, that would willingly uh, uh, stand at the end of the street and hand in their firearm to the government when it comes by. Those guys would still grab their rifles and head to the Golden Gate Bridge to stop the terrorists. But if I told you, hey, guys, there's, nobody's been pulling maintenance on the bridge for, for about 15 or 20 years, and I was looking at it, and it's covered in rust. I mean, it's got rust everywhere. We've got to get down there. We've got to, we've got to chip that rust off, scrape it down to bare steel, make any repairs and then put a fresh coat of primer on it and then a cover coat on that to to seal it off to protect it. And uh and the folks would go, Well yeah man, that's rusty. That's you're right, we've got to do something about that. Uh all right, let me see. I'll let me look at my calendar and see what I got and I don't know. I got the football game this weekend. I got uh my aunt's birthday party. Uh oh, man, this is really just gonna be tight. But I do want to help. Uh let me see. And while they're doing that, those kids would be crossing the Golden Gate Bridge, and sure as hell, the bridge would be brought down by that rust. Guaranteed. Absolutely guaranteed. You guys have seen those shows that, uh, the shows about, uh, uh, after humans, right? Or the shows about, uh, after, if everybody, if all the humans in the world were to disappear, what would happen to their. Uh, to the things that we've built, how things would start uh, 
falling apart and, and breaking and the bridges collapse and the buildings fall down. Well, absolutely, the Golden Gate Bridge would fall. It would carry all of those school children on those buses to their deaths. Guaranteed, absolutely it's going to happen. And then there, there's no doubt, and there's nobody that can say that that wouldn't happen, because it would. At some point, the rust would destroy it, and it would collapse into the bay. But how do you get excited about rust? It's just, it's a slow-moving thing. It's not, uh, rust doesn't jump out and, and chop all the, the, uh, the cables at once. It's, it kind of slowly permeates the metal, moving through it uh, and coating and covering every single metal surface there and eating through it. And then most of the time on the top, it looks okay. You can't even have a coat of paint on it that's still sitting there. You go, well, it's got paint on it. It looks okay. You take a chipping hammer and you pop that thing and uh, you may knock off uh, a full inch thick of steel. It may just crumble because the rust has permeated it. It has destroyed it from the inside out like like a rotting like rotting the flesh of the bridge. <clears throat> so, my point is, uh, there has to be somewhere that you draw the line. When we talk to people, when we talk to people in the battle road classes about <clears throat> self-defense and what to do with, uh, if you... In, if you have someone in your home and you have uh, to defend yourself or your family, uh, we tell them that they have to decide beforehand what they're going to do in a situation like that because the situation does not lend itself to a lot of thinking. And, and the amount of time it takes you to think through uh, what you're going to do and what's going to happen could be the, um, just the amount of time to go past your ability to defend yourself. If you say, if you don't say anything, and somebody comes into your house and they've got a knife or a hatchet or a gun or whatever, and, and they're coming toward you and you have a gun, and you and you're you keep telling them to stop, you say, stop, stop, or I'm going to shoot. Let me take another couple of steps. Stop right now, or I'm going to shoot. And they take another couple of steps. And in your mind, you're thinking. I, I might have to shoot. I, I might have to shoot at this person. And I keep telling them to stop, and they're not stopping. And about that time, they slide the steel in you. Or they fire the round that proves to be the fatal round, and you no longer have the option of defending yourself or your family. You did have it at one point. But because of the time it took for you to to think this to or to figure out, try and figure out at what point am I going to actually do something about it? Well, it was too long. I'm sorry. It took you too long. You don't you don't have that option of defending yourself anymore. It's gone. We tell folks that they have to decide before it ever happens at what point they're going to act and then stick to that plan, stick to that course of action. If somebody comes into their house and that person is showing uh, 
they are showing that they are a threat to the individual or to that person's family. And they are inside the house, and, and you uh, you have presented a, a firearm to them, and that doesn't seem to uh, to cause them any concern, or you've told them to stop or you'll shoot, and they don't stop, then maybe that's the time right there to shoot. I'm not going to tell you. We don't tell you when to shoot. We'll tell you when a good time to shoot would be. We're not going to tell you when to shoot. That's kind of a decision that's going to be up to you. You're going to have to make that decision in because you're going to have to live with it. all of the, the repercussions of it, the, the legal, the moral, the ethical uh, uh, ramifications and repercussions of what you've done. <clears throat> we will tell you that that these things happen very quickly, either in your home, on the street, in your car, wherever it is. They happen very quickly, and you have to decide ahead of time what your course of action is going to be because you're not going to have time to think it out in real-world time that uh, is only that's only seconds or fractions of a second. So you're going to have to think ahead. If, uh, if the threat does this, then I'm going to do this. If they produce a weapon and brandish it, to me, then I'm going to begin shooting at that point. I'm going to shoot uh, until the threat no longer exists. You'll have to make that decision. But without without having a plan prior to that, you can get in some real trouble. And as Americans, we have to figure out the same thing. That is, where to draw the line? When is enough going to be enough? When, because the problem is, is that the folks in Germany, the majority of the folks in Germany were not Nazis. They weren't, they weren't part of the group. That was a very small group that were actually Nazis. But because of Hitler's actions and because of the inactions of the patriots defending the Republic, the Weimar Republic, one day everybody woke up and they were Nazis. Whether they wanted it to be or not, it was too late. Everybody was a Nazi. They were either a Nazi or they were in a camp somewhere. That's the two options you had. If they would have had a better plan things may have gone differently. <clears throat> so that is my, that is what I'm going to leave you with. Uh, that's what I want you to think about. Uh, I see one of the folks here is saying that they have a problem. You don't have enough neighbors uh, awake enough to even block a road. Uh or much less stop a major move against this. Well, you know, you don't you don't have to. That doesn't have to be the case. The first thing I want folks to do is just uh, to think about this question. Uh, I'm not telling you that uh, uh, that you need to <laughs> that you need to try and recruit and train a uh, company, a battalion, a brigade. Uh, division, corps, army, anything like that. 
I'm just telling you that you need to think about and need to figure out what you think uh, where a line should be drawn. Maybe you ought to ask other people the same question, that where a line should be drawn, because because it's time for folks to think about this. Like I said, I'm not trying to, I'm not advocating uh, any type of armed revolution. Uh, I'm advocating for people to think about what our nation is facing, what we're going through, and and to figure out when they think that enough would be enough, when they think that uh, a line in the a line should be drawn that can't be crossed. Because first off, you have to have a plan, and once you've thought about that, once you've made a decision, then you can uh, start talking to other people. Uh, and I would also caution you uh, in your talking or discussions with other folks uh, to ensure that you're not talking about advocating anything of violence to people, especially people you don't know, because that's a sure way to uh, to end up in some type of uh, homeland vacation spot. So I think that you should uh, first off look at this uh, as a philosophical question, and you should figure out what you think the answer is. Once you do, then uh, once you've figured it out, then I think you should talk to other like-minded folks and see what they think. And, uh, and make sure that you that you yourself have thought it out and are ready first. <clears throat> All right. Uh, like I said, that's that's about as far as I'm going to go with that today. I'd like to uh, I'd like to to talk again about uh, Thomas Paine's pamphlet. At one at some point, I'd really like to I'd like to read a little bit more of it to you guys because it's just. Uh, Everybody is familiar with uh, uh, these are the times that try men's souls. They're all everybody's familiar with that line. But listen, there there are a thousand other lines just as great as that one in this work. So take the time and go and read it, because one of the reasons that uh, that Thomas Paine's work was so influential, and it still remains one of the most influential writings uh, of the last several centuries, because Paine wrote it in a fashion that it could be easily understood by the common man. He, he didn't write it in, uh, in the, with the majority of it being in Latin or uh, or in any lofty phrases, he wrote it out in a in a very direct language of the day, so that so that the colonists could read it, or uh, they could listen to it being read, and they could understand it. They could understand exactly what he was saying, and because it was so easy to understand, that made that made the work that much more powerful. It's one of, at the time, it was 
the most widely read, the most widely reprinted uh, document in the history of the colonies. Uh, <clears throat> so <clears throat> take some time and uh, read the document. And uh, if you want, uh, if you want some refreshing reading, uh, skip on over to the Sipsy Street Irregulars blog page and give them a read because uh, these guys are patriots and they're they are utilizing their right to free speech and they put out a ton of great information uh, and I think that you'll appreciate that. Okay. Uh, let's continue on with our discussion of part two of Making the Shot. Now, in part one, we talked to you about uh, sling use, about uh, uh, positions, about uh, executing the shot in a linear, precise fashion. And we talked to you about natural point of aim. Uh, <clears throat> tonight, uh, I want to talk to you about uh, some additional things. Uh, things like uh, inches minutes and clicks and how they pertain uh, to your rifle. I mean, you know, most of you guys have, have heard uh, people say stuff like, uh, I, I sh my rifle is shooting to uh, sub-minute of angle, or I'm shooting, uh, I'm eight minutes off this way, or uh, you, you've heard somebody mention it, or you've heard, uh, I've got to go up uh, three clicks on my rifle, or I've got to come down two minutes, or... Uh, uh, I'm shooting, uh, or if you look at your target, what you're going to see on your target is is the difference between where the uh, where your point of aim is, or your target is, and your point of impact, and that is going to manifest itself normally for Americans in inches. So you're going to have your uh, your bullseye, and then uh, you're going to have the impact of your round, which might be, uh, I'll say, an inch and a half to the right of your target. Well, <clears throat> the inches, minutes, and clicks method is is really, uh, it's the way that we see the information on a target and the way that we use that to change the rifle sights in order to correct the point of impact for that round, to get it to move to the desired place. Uh, it can be used to measure a group size. Uh, that is uh, that is that you should be able to tell the size of your group, which is independent uh, of the range. If you have a two-minute group, you have a two-minute group at 25 and a two-minute group at 500. Uh, it's still a two-minute group. It just... The, the, wherever, at whatever range, uh, it's still going to remain the same size minute group. Uh, it's going to actually be larger in inches, but it's going to be the same minute group. So, so how are we going to figure this out? Well, inches, minutes, and clicks, and, and it's also called IMC, is really uh, nothing more than a translation uh, problem. Uh, that would be no different than if you went to your target and you saw some information there written uh, in what looked to you like uh, Portuguese. And you needed to 
to get that information into English for you, but you couldn't read Portuguese. However, you did have a friend who could read Portuguese and could also speak English. So you're going to tell the this person the Portuguese. They're going to translate it into English and give it to you, and then you're going to use that English on your rifle, right? So that's really all it is, is a translation problem. So why do you figure this out? Well, you're going to start off with inches. You know, everybody everybody knows what an inch is. Uh, if you don't, you can get a ruler and look and find one. Uh, so uh, we don't really need to worry about that too much. Everybody knows, uh, you know, here's an inch, this is two inches, this is three inches. Uh, you know what that is. So how are we going to get that into clicks? Well, those inches have to be translated into minutes. Now, minutes, uh, let's talk about the minutes for a minute. Minutes come off, uh, off from a lineage out of degrees. Now, you have... Uh, you have a a compass that is set up in uh, degrees, and you know that that compass has uh, 360 degrees in it. <clears throat> and uh, and if you took one of those degrees, you know, if you look at the at the compass face, you'll see. Uh, it's a circular face, and you'll see that uh, you've got the uh, the initial arrow that's pointing us to due north, uh, straight to uh, to what would be uh, 360 or one, and it starts moving around the face, and in between each of those marks is one degree. Now, if you take that degree and you ran it out to 100 yards, it would be five feet wide, okay? You'd have your point of origin, uh, and at that point, it would be, uh, there would be almost... Uh, no distance between the two arms that were going out that uh, would make the width of the degree. Uh, and then you would have that, uh, that the two, the two uh, uh, edges of the angle that were moving out. And you think of this like, uh, you know, like a slice of pie. You know, you take a slice of pie and uh, it's got the sharp edge, the point, uh, and then as you move away from the point, it widens out to the end. <clears throat> so do each of the degrees on a compass. All right? So that that one degree would go from the, uh, from the point where you are, the initial point where you are, and move out. And once it got out to 100 yards, the fat wide end of the piece of pie would be five feet wide in one degree would be five feet wide, approximately. I'm not, I'm not going to give you the exact mathematical uh, uh, 
of this, but I'm just going to tell you it's going to be about five feet wide. That's great. The degree uh, is five feet wide at 100 yards, right? Now, it's going to keep expanding, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, because it does, right? I mean, just because you reach the end of the pie there at uh, at 100 yards, and that, that pie, the, the, the questy part of the pie there is five feet wide, the degree does not end, right? You've got those two edges of the angle that continue on into infinity. And as they go away from you, they continue to get wider and wider. The problem with super shooters is if you need to adjust your rifle, you really can't do it in degrees because, uh, you know, if you're... If you were five foot away from your target at 100 yards, then, yeah, you could tell, I need to move it one degree to the left. That's too much of a deviation, okay? But thankfully, uh, the uh, degrees are divided again into smaller units called minutes. Inside that one-degree cone that is five feet wide at 100 yards, are 60 minutes, okay? So if I have 60 minutes that are that end up totaling out to be five feet wide at 100 yards, what is the width of each of those individual minutes within that one degree, right? It's pretty easy. That's going to be uh, 5 feet, 60 inches, divided by 60. Uh, it's 1 inch. So, like I said, it's going to be, uh, there's actually uh, a different number than 1 inch, but we're going to call it 1 inch for us. Uh, and that works out perfect. We couldn't have asked for anything better, right? So now we have an understanding that our minutes are going to be 1 inch, per 100 yards, one inch per 100 yards. Remember I told you that the, the angle is going to continue to open as it runs away from you. Here's the other good part of this. <clears throat> if the minute of angle is one inch per 100 yards, how, how wide is the minute when the two edges of the minute angle cross the 200-yard line, it's going to be two inches. It just I, I tell you, it could not work out better for shooters if that happens to be the way it works. So you have one minute of angle. That one minute of angle where you are standing uh, is going to be zero at... 100 yards, it's going to be 1 inch, and it's 1 inch per 100 yards. So when it crosses 200, it's 2 inches wide. When it crosses 300, it's 3 inches wide. One minute of arc at 300 yards is 3 inches wide. And it continues on uh, as you go down, as you go through the, uh, as you go farther away from you. And it just works out that uh, as you come back toward you, from our 100 yards, the same geometric function, right? So if it is 
one inch wide, if one minute of arc is one inch wide at 100, if it's one, in, one inch per 100, and at 202 inches, at 303 inches, if you start coming back toward you, at 50 yards, how wide is one minute of angle? Well, if it's one inch per 100, then if you chop that in half, it's 0.5 inches at 50. It's 0.25 inches at 25 meters. So it's a quarter inch at 25, a half inch at 50, quarter of an inch at 75 meters, at 75 yards, and one inch wide at 100. Two inches wide at 200. Three inches wide at 300. Four inches wide at 400. Five inches wide at 500. Etc. So now we have a good uh, a good way to gauge, a good way to translate the inches that we have on a target into minutes. If I'm taking a shot at the bullseye at 300 yards, and I don't quite hit the bullseye. Uh, I actually, at 300 yards, I actually hit uh, uh, six inches to the right of it. I go down there and take a look. I go, man, I'm six inches to the right of this target at 300. I measure it, and I get six inches. So how many minutes is my rifle shooting at that 300-yard target? Well, we know that one minute is one inch per 100. So when you get to 300, you know that one minute is three inches. You have a six-inch deviation divided by the three inches, which is one minute. You end up with two minutes of arc is your deviation. So now you have a good way uh, to change your, your the inches of wherever you are on the paper into minutes. <clears throat> so... Uh, there's a, there's always some good graphics to go with this, and I'd like to do it on a chalkboard too, but you're not going to get that. So, so you're just going to have to listen and uh, do your own graphics. <laughs> All right, but that should give you uh, a pretty decent understanding of what of the way to translate inches into minutes. Now, here's the other thing I'm going to tell you. Is that whenever you have a... And whenever you say, look, my rifle is shooting to two minutes, then that's going to tell you what size your group is going to be at whatever range you're shooting at, right? That means that if you're shooting a two-minute of art group and you take your rifle down to the 25-yard line and you want to sight it in at 25 uh, yards because uh, it's easy to walk down there and, you know, and get your feedback real quick. And that's that's all you have close to your house is a 25-yard line. You say, okay, well, I'm just going to have to do it at 25 yards. It's no different as far as getting your group size and telling, uh, uh, figuring out what size group you're actually going to shoot. It's no different shooting it at... Uh, 25, and it is shooting at 400. Your group remains the same size. Now, you'll have to factor in come-ups and ballistics when you're shooting at 400, wind, everything else. But the actual size of your group is not going to change. 
if you are a two-minute arc shooter at 25 meters, you're going to be a two-minute of arc shooter at 400 meters. So if you go to the 25-meter line, the 25-yard line, and you shoot a two-minute of arc group, then how big should your group be? Well, we know that one minute of arc is one inch per 100 meters. Traveling away from you, that's addition. Traveling back towards you from 100, that's going to be division. So you come back to 25 meters, and you know that one minute of arc is 0.25 inches. Uh, pardon me. Yeah, 0.25 inches, a quarter inch. Two minutes of arc, two quarter inches wide, which would be a half inch. That means if you were a two-minute of arc shooter, then you would put all of your rounds into a half-inch circle. Basically, uh, shooting a 30 caliber uh, rifle, all of your rounds would go through uh, basically one hole. Uh, they were, all of the edges would be touching. Okay, That's what happens... Uh, when you're a two-minute of arc shooter. Now, when you come to the Battle Road uh, uh, Fundamentals of Rifle courses, we're, we're going to attempt teach you the skills and techniques needed for you to be a four-minute of arc shooter. Uh, now, it's possible to keep going on that path and get yourself down to a two-minute, a one-minute, or a sub-minute of angle shooter. And that's good. That's great. And you should strive for that. However... We think that being able to shoot to four minutes of arc is pretty dang good in and of itself. At uh, being a four minute of arc shooter means that you can put ten rounds into a uh, D target silhouette, which is about the size of a human silhouette. You can put uh, ten rounds into that target from 400 yards in uh, two minutes, and every round goes into the black on that silhouette. From 400 yards with iron sights. And that is a pretty good standard. But if you're a four minute of arc shooter and you're setting your rifle ends at uh, the 25 yard line, what does that mean? All right, we know that one minute is one inch wide per 100 meters. So and that's going away from you. You would, uh, uh, you would multiply it coming back toward you, you would divide it. So if I am four minutes of arc at 25 yards, that means I am multiplying 0.25 by 4, which gives me the sum of 1, 1 inch. At 25 meters, I should be able to put all 10 rounds into a 1 inch square with my rifle. And that's the standard that we're trying to teach you to shoot at. <clears throat> okay? So if you're shooting at 25 yards and you're a four-minute arc shooter, that means all of your rounds are going to go into a one-inch square. If you're shooting at 100 yards, what does that mean? All of your rounds are going to go into what size square? A four-minute square. One minute is one inch per 100 yards. Four minutes at 100 means four times one equals four. All of your rounds are going to go into a four-inch square at 100 yards. What about 
200 yards. 200 yards, we know that one minute of arc is one inch wide per 100 yards. At 100 yards, it's one inch. At 200 yards, it's two inch. Four <clears throat> times two is eight. At 200 yards, you're going to put all ten shots into an eight-inch square, and it keeps going as it travels away from you. 400 yards, you're going to put all ten shots into a 16-inch square. When you get to 500 yards, you're going to put all ten shots into a 20-inch square. That's what it means to be a four-minute-of-arc shooter. Okay, I hope that uh, I hope that I've got this. Let me look at. Uh, sometimes I forget to, to keep track of the the chat here. Let me see if anybody is uh, is asking anything or uh, are making any comments of this. Uh, I don't see anything. It seems it looks like that uh, they're having trouble with the. Uh, having trouble with the chat room, which is not surprising. Okay. Let's move on now to clicks because you've gone and you've looked at your target. You've determined uh, how big is your group and where is your group. That's the first two things that you always ask yourself when you go down to look at your target. How big is my group? And where is my group? So in order to determine how big your group is, you're going to look at uh, all of the holes in the paper that you just made. And when you look at it, you're going to count uh, the, the rounds there that are all together in the group, and you're going to exclude uh, any anomalies that you know for sure, are anomalies. That means uh, if you, if in the process of shooting, you called your shot, like I spoke to you about uh, last week, that means whenever you squeeze the trigger, you took a middle snapshot of where the front side of the crosshairs were when the shot was fired, and you saw that your front sight was low and to the right, that you had pulled the shot, and you called that shot, when you get down there and you see that, cop, that shot that's low and to the right, you're no longer going to in your group because you called that one. You knew that you shot it out of your group. For whatever reason, you shot it out of your group. You're not going to count that in as your group. You're going to look at the other rounds that are clustered together. You're going to uh, put it like an imaginary uh, kind of a kind of a circle uh, around them, a circle, an oval, whatever that you, you can put that will encompass the group. And then in the center of that, uh, you're going to make a mark, and that will be the center of your group. Then you'll measure across the group, across the from one side to the other of that circle that you put up there that encompassed the rest of your rounds, and that is the size of your group. If you can get uh, all of the all of the holes. Uh, into a uh, like into a quarter, then you're pretty close to being at four minutes. 
So first you determine the size of your group. And then, where is your group? Is my group on the target? Is it in that one-inch square? Okay, great. Perfect. Let's go. Let's go and move on to the next thing. If it's not, then you're going to need to figure out uh, what your correction is going to be. So you find out the the size of your group. You determine the geographical center of your group. Then you measure from the geographical center of your group over to uh, the center of where you're of what you are aiming at. If you're aiming at a bullseye, then you would draw one vertical line through the bullseye and one horizontal line through the bullseye that would go from the center of the bullseye and reach its limits to the right and left. And then the vertical line would be drawn so that uh, it started in the center of the bullseye and its, uh, its limits would be top and bottom of the page. So you measure the distance it would take to get to the center line, which is the vertical line going up and down out of the target, and say you're two inches from the center line, and then you would measure from your the geographical center of your group up to the horizontal line, and say you're an inch below the horizontal line. That would mean your correction would be, uh, I believe I said two and a half, two and a half left, one up. Two and a half inches left, one inch up. Now you're going to translate that in two minutes if you're shooting at uh, 25 meters. And you said, all right, my correction is uh, 10 minutes left, four minutes up. So I've made my corrections and looking at the, the target, I've determined how big my group is, where is my group. I have located the geographical center of the group. I've compared that to where it needs to be, and I've measured the distance. I've found them in inches. I've translated them into minutes. And then I've written it down. I've written, if, if nothing else, I wrote, wrote it in my hand because we know that uh, we know that Simply memorizing corrections uh, always have a a negative one meter or negative one yard uh, uh, problem, and that is uh, whatever the distance it is from the target to your rifle where you can make the corrections, uh, that's how long your memory will last, minus one yard. So if you're going back to the 25 meter line, your memory will last 25 yards minus one yard. It'll last for 24 yards. That means one yard before you get to your rifle, your memory will fail you. So you must write it down. I'll go even further than that. And I will tell you, do not ever touch your sights on your rifle. Don't ever touch the knobs on your scope without writing it down. You're going to do it like Hansel and Gretel. Uh, you will always make sure that when you make any type of adjustment to your rifle, uh, I would even go as far as to say if you're going to tighten the screw on the stock, you write that down. Tighten the screw on the, on the stock. 
the temperature of the day, whatever, uh, that you keep a good log of this, all right? But you're going to take your correction back to your rifle, and you're going to do what with it? Now you've got your correction in minutes. Now how are you going to, how are they going to, how is that going to go on your rifle? Well, you're going to have to look at your rifle and see what your corrections are. And if you have uh, something like Tech Sights or a uh, M1 Garand, M14, something like that, then you're going to have uh, a very easy job because they are basically one-to-one corrections. That means you see you have one minute, it's going to be a one-click adjustment on your rifle. Now, the reason we call them clicks because of the sound they make. You know, when you turn that, when you turn the knob on your sights, it makes a click. That's because there's a device in there that's that is is keeping uh, the the adjustments that you're making. They're keeping them locked in place for each one until you put a certain amount of pressure on it. <clears throat> and so that if you turn it a certain amount, it won't just automatically spin back. It's going to stay there until you put the required pressure on it again to move it one way or the other. So each time you move that knob in one direction or the other, uh, as you move it a certain uh, incremental distance, it's going to make a click. You're going to feel it. You may not hear it, but you, you certainly should be able to feel it. <clears throat> All right, now I'm not going to I'm not going to go into trying to tell you or discuss with you the the different variations that there are on on all the different firearms because uh, there's almost as many different variations as there are firearms. Uh, and the, the thing that is determining a lot of this is the distance from your front sight to your rear sight. Uh, on the M14s, on the Grands, on the tech sites, uh, and the, that's why Texas has to be ordered for the specific rifle that you're going to put it on. <clears throat> they have made them so that when you turn that knob uh, or the screw on it, that it is producing a one-to-one uh, uh, translation uh, for the rifle. You turn it, you make one click, you're going to move one minute. You are going to have to figure out uh, either by looking at the manufacturer's information, uh, what the uh, what the increment is, but at the end of the day, regardless of what the manufacturer says, you're going to have to shoot that rifle, make adjustments, measure the adjustments. See how much that uh, uh, that one click moved the point of impact of that round, and then determine that that will be your adjustment. If it if one click uh, on your particular uh, knob or setting moves at one minute, that's perfect. That's great. If it doesn't, it'll you'll have to figure out whatever it is. If it moved it. Uh, one and a half minutes, or one and a quarter minutes, or if it moved at a quarter minute, you're going to be able to figure that out by sh- by making the adjustment, shooting it, measuring the deviation 
uh, from the point of impact from the last one, from the last round that you fired, uh, and that is going to be your deviation. Normally, it's written uh, on your scopes or commonly information pack with the scopes. The scopes can be they can be one minute clicks. Uh, however, they're usually less than that. Most scopes are generally fall into the quarter minute clicks. That means if you come back with a uh, deviation of ten minutes left and four minutes up, then that's going to have to be multiplied four in order to get you the correct number of clicks if you have a quarter minute scope. So now you're going to move 40 clicks left and 16 clicks up in order to adjust the impact of your rounds onto the target. So I don't think that, uh, I hope that I'm not confusing. I don't think that I am. I think I've kind of delivered this in a pretty linear fashion. Uh, <clears throat> and then you'll fire, uh, you'll fire another group uh, to confirm your corrections. And if it's not right, then you'll make additional corrections in order to bring the impact of your rounds onto your target. Like I said, you're going to write down Every time you touch your sights, you're going to write down what you did because uh, there are plenty of times when people they get it mixed up. And instead of doing what they meant to do, which was 10 minutes left and 4 minutes up, they reverse it and they'll do 10 minutes up, 4 minutes left. And then they go, wow, it, it didn't, you know, I put the corrections on you told me. But it's all jacked up. Now it's like it didn't move any that much further to the left, but it's a lot higher now. That's because you reversed it. <clears throat> so you're going to need to know uh, <clears throat> what you did in order so that you can subtract it and make it right. And the way you're going to do that is by looking at your notes. And say, okay, here's what I did. I was supposed to do this, but I did this instead. <clears throat> uh I think that that probably about covers that. The only thing that I would really add to this is get into the habit of of twisting the knobs and uh, and stuff on your on your rifle. Don't don't look at it as some kind of uh, spooky voodoo or something. And you shoot at your target, and you're and at uh, a uh, hundred yards, you were six inches to the right, and so from then on, you just uh, you just aim six inches to the left instead of adjusting your rifle, because that only works at a hundred yards. Unless you're going to uh, uh, do the math and do the distance and say, okay, I'm I'm shooting at 200, so I'm going to put it uh, uh, 12 inches now to the uh, uh, to the left. So get used to doing is actually manipulating uh, the knobs and stuff on your scopes and on your uh, sights. Thing that you can figure out and make it work. <clears throat> the other thing I'll tell you is that 
once you have your rifle sighted in, very carefully, uh, like once you have your, uh, like on my Garand, I've got my Garands, once it's sighted in, I uh, took and put the, uh, the, you know, the, the beep getting ready to have a store here and uh, uh, making sure that all the vehicle windows are up. I left them all down to try and sucker in the storm. But it looks like it's uh, getting here now, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and uh, get them all shut while I'm talking to you. <clears throat> Once you have your rifle sighted in, like I took my grand, got it sighted in, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to very carefully uh, count the clicks all the way down on my sights so that I've got the, once I have it sighted in, I'm going to take it and I'm going to run the sights all the way back down uh, to the, where they're bottomed out, where there's no movement anymore. I do that for two reasons on uh, battle rifles. <laughs> One is because they're, uh, the sights uh, typically extend above their ears, and I, I don't want uh, something to hit the sights when they're beyond their protection. So when I'm done shooting, I'll zip my sights back down to where they're protected uh, by the ears, the protective ears on the rifle. <laughs> the other reason is because if something happens, if I loan that rifle to somebody else and they uh, they sh uh, shoot it in uh, to their specifications, or uh, uh, or I give it to somebody and they're like fooling with the rifle uh, as they shouldn't be, but they very well could. And then they grab that uh, windage or elevation knob and they give it a couple of spins, see what it does. I don't have to wonder what. Uh, where my bullet's going to hit anymore because what I'll do, I'll just uh, bottom it out and I'll count it back up. And the good thing is, is on most of the battle rifles, they're pretty close to the same. So I can usually pick up a grand, uh, uh, center the windage, uh, run it all the way down, run the elevation all the way down, count it back up 12, and I'm going to be in the ballpark. Uh, and that's what I do for my rifle. That's what you should do for yours. You should, uh, once you get it sighted in, you can do it with a scope, too. It may take, uh, if you have a lot of uh, adjustment, you may have to uh, click it, uh, uh, you know, 200 to the right or something like that to bottom it out. But then you come back 200, now you know where it is. <clears throat> so... That would be my suggestion for you guys. So once you have your rifle sighted in, then uh, count yourself uh, all the way out to dead, to bottom dead, one direction, uh, you know, both uh, your windage and your elevation, and then uh, and then return it. But like I said, you, gotta, you need to make sure that you count it very carefully, then return it to your zero, and then uh, check and make sure that it is still zeroed. And then you keep that, that little piece of paper there is going to be stored uh, 
uh, in my grand. It's stored inside the uh, the buttstock. Uh, if you've got if you've got a rifle that uh, doesn't have a place, I would I would think that would be important enough that you could uh, fold the paper up and uh, undo the screws on the uh, the butt plate, slide it in there, and then close it back up. Something so that you know uh, what your uh, what your zero is going to be. And certainly, you know it's pretty easy with with uh, the grand and the M14 and stuff like that. I know that it's a very it's a very easy number. Zero on the windage, uh, twelve up, and uh, that should put in the ballpark on most of the rifles. But you're going to do that for each of your personal rifles uh, once you've got it sighted in. <clears throat> okay, so that's going to take us through uh, inches, minutes, and clicks. Now, as far as talking targets go. Uh, make sure that whenever you, when you get down to your target and you're looking at your target, that you need to know exactly what the target is is telling you. And uh, there's plenty of places online that you can you can look at groups and find out what uh, what certain groups look like uh, and what the problems you could be experiencing. Whenever you produce a certain type group, I'll just cover one very easy and simple one, and that is uh, when you're shooting at your target, you're shooting at the bullseye, and you have a very nice straight line up and down, straight through the bullseye of rounds. They're not all hitting the bullseye. They make a line that's going straight up and down through the bullseye. Normally, that means that you are continuing to breathe uh, during your during the process of executing the shot rather than pausing during your respiratory pause. And it's uh, very easy to uh, to diagnose that usually, usually very easy to correct. It just means that that you're not stopping at the same place for your respiratory pause when you're taking a shot. Uh, you're letting some more air out or you're taking some more air in something. You're breathing during the shot because that is the the most logical thing that will cause your sights to go straight up and down. You've got a good position. You're doing just about everything else right, but you're the line of, of holes that you make in the paper straight up and down. That's going to tell you that uh, most probably that you are breathing during the shot. If you have a uh, line of... Uh, of rounds that are not quite straight up and down, say that they are, uh, uh, say that they're in a little bit of a diagonal up and down, uh, then could very well mean that as you're firing, the recoil is causing your support arm, your elbow, to move. And it's moving out, it's sliding out with each of the shots. As it slides out, it's allowing your rifle to dip down further and further. And so that would make a, a good, uh, kind of a good straight up and down line uh, that goes through your target. <clears throat> so you can look at your target, and your target will tell you uh, basically what you're doing wrong. You just have to understand how to, how to hear what it's saying. And, uh, you know, we always tell people that your your friends will lie to you, your mom, your dad will lie to you, your kids will lie to you, your wife, your husband will lie to you, everybody will lie to you. The only 
the only thing you could ever trust not to lie to you is your target. Your car will lie to you. car will tell you you've got uh, uh, another seven or eight miles left in the gas tank, and you'll run out. Uh, your target won't lie to you. If you're sitting there telling yourself, man, I got it made. I'm a, I, I know what I'm doing. I got the shot. I got the licks. I'm a, I'm a four-minute-of-arc shooter. And uh, you bust off that group. You go down and you look at it, and uh, it is uh, six minutes of arc wide. Then what, what does that tell you? Your target says, look, man, I... I I can't lie to you. I know you want to be a four-minute-of-arc shooter, and you're really trying, but you're not making it. You're not making the grade, bro. You're a six-minute-of-arc shooter. you got to do some more work. you got to work on your position, on your breathing, on your trigger control. You're really close, man. You're really close, but you're not quite getting it. Your target won't lie to you. Everybody, everything else will, but your target will tell you the truth. You've got to listen to what your target is telling you. You've got to take that data back from the target line. Anytime you ever go down to the target line, you have to get data from the target. If you don't or if you can't, all of those rounds you just fired are useless to you. You made a hole in the paper, maybe, but why or how? How can you do it better? You're not going to know anything unless you know how to understand what your target is telling you. So take a look around the web. Uh, You can Google uh, common firing line errors, and that should bring you up a a big slab of folks. uh, Fred's over at Fred's M14 Stocks. Uh, He's done some work, and he's put together a a nice little flyer that you can take a look at. It'll have common firing line errors. It'll be a whole bunch of different groups that you can look at that uh, will give you some indication of what could possibly ba- uh, be going wrong uh, with you, what you're doing wrong uh, on the firing line, okay? <clears throat> All right. Covers the inches, minutes, and clicks, uh, talking targets. Uh, another thing I want to get real quick here is I want you guys to understand that uh, that I don't care how good you are, how much you shoot, uh, uh, everybody, every single one of us at some point in our shooting pads are going to develop some glitches. And they can be from very minor to very severe glitches. Uh, we had one of the guys at this at the event this last weekend who who had a nice long string of glitches that were interfering with the stuff that he was doing. He was uh, He was flinching, blinking, jerking. And here's the problem is that when you're shooting a centerfire rifle, a good deal of that is going to be masked by the recoil. Uh, And even when you try and get down and look at them full on, if they're shooting uh, uh, like one of the M14, uh, those SOCOM scout uh, rifles, (laughs) and you're trying to look at them, every time they pop on off, it's like some of these... uh, popping you on the top of the head with a ball peen, so it's kind of even hard to see what they're doing then. So how are you going to figure it out? Well, the the best way is by doing some ball and dummy. And uh, you can do this yourself uh, during your dry firing. I'm not talking about ball and dummy. I'm talking about 
working on your technique while you're doing your dry firing. <clears throat> and we talk to you guys about dry firing quite a bit. And uh, and don't worry, I'll I'll talk to you about it every couple of months about dry firing. But right now we're going to talk about ball and dummy. Ball and dummy is something you can do at the range, and uh, you you need a partner to work on it with. So you can get your buddy. You and he'll go down there. What you're going to do, you're going to set up side by side. Uh, you're going to be shooting at your targets, but you're not going to be loading the rifle yourself. What you're going to do is you're going to uh, get everything ready uh, to shoot. And then if you've got a, a magazine-fed rifle, whatever, you're going to, he's going to have the magazine. Or if you've got a bolt-action internal magazine rifle, then you're just going to pop open the action. You're going to look off uh, away from the rifle, and you're going to be humming and and stuff like that and not looking, and he's going to uh, reach over and either put a round in, put a round in, and he's going to close the action or cycle the bolt. You're going to put the mag in and cycle the bolt, whatever it is, and you're going to take aim on the target, just like you would if you're going to fire uh, at the target any other time, executing the shot precisely by the steps that we told you. You're going to squeeze the round off, and you'll either get a live round or you'll get a dummy round. And the purpose of this, and usually what I'll do is I, I always make sure I'll, I've got a couple of good live rounds in there right up at first to go ahead and just spin the guys up. <clears throat> You're going to fire a couple of those rounds, those live rounds. And then uh, on the next uh, one at some point, it may be one live round, two live rounds, three live rounds, whatever. But in this string, I'm going to make sure that I reach over there and I put a dummy round in and close the bolt. Now you're going to get over there. You're going to get. You're going to uh, fire the shot, uh, executing the shot precisely according to those uh, steps that we told you. Squeeze that trigger, but there's not going to be any recoil. So at this point, it's going to. There's nothing that's going to be able to mask any of the any of the stuff that uh, that you have picked up. And listen, there's a lot of things you could be flinching. And flinching is usually uh, a reaction that you've developed to the rifle going off. You know, it's like a you flinch, you kind of you 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 move, you you grit your teeth, uh, and uh, and because you are flinching, it actually makes a movement to the rifle. Remember what we said uh, last week: that any movement that you apply to the rifle before the round has left the barrel is going to affect the impact of the round downrange. So flinching is absolutely going to affect the impact uh, of the round downrange. And uh, usually what you're doing is you're jerking the shoulder back a little bit because you're like trying to kind of run away from the recoil. If you're a right-handed shooter, what this tends to do is, is it usually results in a round that you just shot being high and to the right for a right-handed shooter to the left for a left-handed shooter. Uh, then there's bucking. Now this is something that I that I my personality lent itself to. Bucking is the opposite of flinching. As far as you're you're like uh, you're saying, oh yeah, you're gonna you're gonna try and, and recoil into me. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna recoil into you. And that's where you, you're pushing your your shoulder into the rifle right at the minute, moment of firing. Uh, and usually it's right, it's right just a fraction of a second before. It's in anticipation of the rifle firing. And uh, uh, if you're 
if you're holding the fire of the rifle correctly, in, in recoil is really not a factor, so you may have two problems to solve at once. But if you're if you're bucking, normally in a right-hand shooter, it'll result in a, a shot low and to the left. If you're a right-handed shooter, it'll be a little bit low and to the left. Because remember, if you're a right-handed shooter, you're going to be pushing forward with the, your right shoulder while holding the rifle in place with your support hand, with your left hand. When you push it forward with it, while holding it, that means you're going to cause the barrel to go down and to the left. All right? Then there's jerking. Jerking is just that. It's jerking the trigger. Uh, and usually the people do this because they, they've just got their sights onto the target, and they're trying to make that rifle fire before those sights leave the target. And they're going to jerk that trigger. Jerk it right there. Make it shoot right there when the sights are on the target. Jerk it. And uh, and absolutely, this will cause a deviation from the point of impact. Normally, you'll get a horizontal spread on the target. And it, and it may be to the right or it may encompass uh, a line directly through the target. You're going from the left to the right uh, through the target. It'll normally be a horizontal spread because you're you're pulling that trigger on a, uh, to the right or to the left. If you're a right or left-hand shooter, you're pulling that trigger uh, to the right or left, and it's causing the barrel to swing to the right and left. Uh, blinking. Blinking is something. And, and listen, like I said, this is something that uh, that that almost everybody goes through, which is grabbing one of these things at some point or another uh, and and a lot of people will get the blinking. That's What they'll do is they'll blink their eye right at the moment uh, that the rifle is in recoil. When, you know, the, the, when the concussion of the shot goes off, uh, and it could be for you, or it could be the rifle right next to you going off, but it causes you to blink your eyes. You know, because sometimes if you're shooting a, a good uh, a centerfire rifle, you can feel that that smack on your face from the concussion. It's almost like a, like a pillow hitting you in the face. So it's hard at times to keep, from some people, to keep from blinking. So you need to make sure that uh, when you are helping with the ball and dummy, that you're watching for all of these things. You're watching to make sure they're not jerking the trigger, pushing their shoulder into it, that they're not pulling away from it, uh, and that they're not blinking their eyes. Because uh, I can almost guarantee you, at least for Battle Road, we recommend shooting with your eyes open. We find it to be a significant factor in increasing your the odds of, of hitting the target to be shooting with your eyes open, right? Uh, one of the ways that you can tell, you yourself can tell, if you are blinking is if you can call the shot or not. Remember what I told you that when you when you make the rifle fire, when you when the, the rifle fires at that exact moment, you should be able to tell where your sights are, where your crosshairs are, the moment the rifle is fired. If you cannot, uh, one reason could be that you are blinking. Now, a lot of, most of the times, these things are not isolated things. Most of the times, you'll have 
of one or more will be connected. If you got a blink and you probably got a flinch uh, or buck going on with it, uh, if you've got a uh, flinch, you may very well have a jerk going with it. So make sure that uh, make sure that you guys are doing your ball and dummy in order to uh, to find out these things and then correct them. Usually what we'll do is we'll do the ball and germ, du- uh, dummy drill, and what you do is you make them, they'll fire a live round, and that will spin up their, whatever their glitch they got going, and then you'll make them earn a live round by feeding them dummies until they execute the shot correctly. Once they execute the shot correctly, you put in another live round and see if you spin up any more after that. You do that, uh, if you run through about uh, 30 or 40 uh, uh, rounds of ball and dummy, you do this on a regular basis, it's a great way to keep you clean of these. All right. Uh, The other thing you can do while you guys are working together at the range is a thing called carding your sights. The... The way that you're going to do this is you're going to uh, get the correct position like we talked about uh, on the last program. You're going to determine your natural point of aim, determine what it is, move it onto the target, and then begin executing the shot in the precise order that we told you. The only thing is is when you're, you're going to stop right when you get to the trigger squeeze in the series of steps. When you get to that point, the uh, person who's helping you is going to take out their driver's license or a card or a piece of paper or something and hold it uh, either between your eye and the sights or your eye and the scope. And they're going to tell you to breathe in, breathe out, uh, maybe give yourself a tiny little shake and... uh, and when you get to your respiratory pause, they're going to, you're going to tell them. And when you tell them, they're going to pop that card out of the way. And you're going to tell, you're going to look at the very image that you see across your sights or through your scope. And that is going to be your natural point of aim. Okay? You take the very first image because your brain and your body are going to try and help you yank that those sights over to the target within a fraction of a second, but you take that very first image that you see, and you're going to keep doing this. You're going to keep carding the sights until when they pop that card away, that your rifle is exactly where you want it to be, and that is going to be your true natural point of aim. That means that uh, theoretically, you could close your eyes, Chamber around, go through the six, the uh, fire the shot, breathe in, breathe out, fire the shot, breathe in, breathe out, fire the shot with your eyes closed. If you have your natural point of aim set up correctly, you could do this with your eyes closed, and all of your rounds should be able to go into a postage-sized stamp target at 25 yards with your eyes closed. That is why we stress working on your natural point of aim because it relieves you of a lot of the things that you have to do 
in order to make the shot. Now, it's not going to make the shot for you. You're still going to have to execute the uh, the the shot of the uh, execute the shot according to the precise steps that we told you. But everything else is going to be taken care of for you. Once you have your natural point of aim placed on the target, uh, you're good to go. <clears throat> Uh, we're coming up to the end of the show. I spent a little bit more time on some of the things that I meant to, but uh, uh, let me close up with uh, with a little bit of the history. All right, today is October 2nd, and guess what day that is? That's the day that the Texas... War for Independence began. What happened was basically the same thing that uh, that happened with the the American colonists during the American War for Independence. They the colonists did not want independence. The American colonists never want for the first year of the American Revolutionary War. It was not about independence. It was about the British granting the colonists the rights and protections under the British Constitution. That's all they wanted. They wanted to come back into the fold under the rights of the British Constitution, which is what they were being denied. When this all began, the the colonists began protesting in response to their protests. They had penalties and punitive measures. Finally, we had the governor of the colony, Gage, saying, "In order to keep these, in order to shut these people up, I'm going to confiscate their firearms or their ability to use them." And he sent out troops to confiscate the firearms and the gunpowder. This led to the beginning of the American Revolutionary War. In the 1830s, the Texas colonists were not looking for independence. They wanted, under uh, Austin's rule, uh, Austin was one of the main impresarios uh, in Texas, they wanted their rights under the Mexican Constitution of uh, 1824. They weren't looking for independence. They wanted their rights under the Constitution. Uh, They were not being allowed those rights, and they began protesting. In response to the protests, they began to receive uh, some punitive measures. And and in response to those punitive measures, they began to protest even more. Whereupon, Santa Anna decided that in order to shut these guys up and make them toe the line, he was going to confiscate their firearms, including a cannon that was in the town of Gonzales. And... <clears throat> The uh, when the report or whatever was written about the cannon, the guy said, "Yes, they, the villagers there have a cannon, which is really only useful to signal the start of horse races and stuff like that." It was a very small cannon. Uh, I think it fired like a, about a golf ball sized uh, ball, and uh, it was a six pounder. It was a very, uh, very you know, an old primitive cannon that the government had given the the town in order to protect them from the marauding Indians. 
well, the government said, we we want you to turn in the firearms that were there. There was uh, several hundred stands of uh, firearms there and a cannon. They said, we want you to turn those in. And the colonists said, well, what? you gave this to us for us to protect ourselves from the Indians. And we don't like what's happening, and it looks to us like like you're trying to do more than than what we're asking you. It looks like you're trying to to make us your slaves. And uh, the government said, basically, they said, well, regardless, it doesn't matter. We just, just shut up and give us the stuff. So they sent a detachment of uh, Mexican cavalry to Gonzales to confiscate the cannon and the firearms. Well, when they got there, the river was on a rise, and they couldn't make it across. So the, the cavalry, the commander of the cavalry, shouted across, and he said, we're here to confiscate the cannon. Go, go get the cannon and give it to us. And they had actually taken the cannon and buried it uh, a little bit earlier, because they, they knew that they were on the way. They heard that they were on the way, just like the, the guy did at Concord, remember? They had removed the cannon and some they had buried. Well, the Mexican troops said, well, we're not going anywhere until we get it. And the colonists said, well, you're not going to get it. And uh, <clears throat> they were kind of at an impasse. <clears throat> well, during this time, as they're waiting for the river to, rot, to go down so they can cross, more and more colonists were hearing about this. And as they heard about it, they were coming to the aid of the townspeople in Gonzales. And uh, the, from the, the start of just a few townspeople, uh, very rapidly they began to get the several hundred other colonists who had ridden in to help them, and ridden or walked in to help them. And finally, uh, the colonists decided, well, they said, well, look, we better, we better do something because they're not going to go away. So they went and they dug up the cannon. They mounted it on a, on a carriage that they could actually push by hand. And they went uh, upriver to a crossing they could find, and they said, we're going to attack the the Mexican troops uh, and force them to leave. The only problem was, once they got across the river and they started heading toward the Mexican forces, a very heavy fog came in. And now, in the middle of this fog, they're lost. But being Texans, I guess, they decided they weren't going to let that stop them. So they basically tried to continue on with the attack, and they attacked what they thought was the Mexican positions, and actually fired uh, uh, the cannon, which had been filled with scrap metal. I don't believe they had any like any actual balls that were made for it, but they had, they had filled the cannon with scrap metal, and they attacked the Mexican positions. And the Mexicans uh, mounted up and took off, and and rode off a ways, and the commander started uh, asking them, they said, hey, he goes, what are you guys doing? Why did you shoot that cannon at us? He said, because you were going to take it. He goes, well, I have orders to come and take it. And they said, well, we don't want to give it to you. We're not going to give it to you. And then they had actually even had time that they had a seamstress sew up a flag that had a, a rudimentary sketch of the cannon on there with the words, come and take it, also sewn into the flag. And the the Mexican cavalry officer said, well, I, I'm here to, to confiscate it. I'm here to take it along with the 
all of the arms in your arm storage facility there. And they said, well, we're not going to give it to you. And the discussion went back and forth, and the colonists offered up a, a kind of a face-saving thing, and they said, well, just tell him you came to get it, and it was gone, and we didn't have it anymore. And uh, the cavalry sergeant thought this over for a moment, and he ended up telling the, the townspeople that, uh, he goes, hey, uh, I can't do that. I, I have my orders. And uh, so it ended with a few shots being fired, and finally the cavalry officer said, you know, I, I was I wasn't ordered to come down here and attack anyone. I was ordered to confiscate the thing, not to cause some type of a uh, uh, of an incident. So he returned back and he told his commanders. He said, "Well, they wouldn't give it to me," and that made the Mexican general serious. And they determined they're going to go back and they're going to get it from them. They're going to get the cannon. They're going to get the. What turned out to be 200 rifles that were pretty much about 80 or 90 percent were broken. And that happened on uh, October 2nd, 1835. And that began a seven-month run to independence, which finally occurred at the Battle of San Jacinto on April 20th, 1836. Okay, guys, uh, we'll see you this uh, next uh, Thursday, 7 p.m. October 16th, we'll have uh, Becky Akers with us. Until then, guys, God bless and uh, keep you, and may God guide our higher hand in this for our cause is just.
John the Revelator, who's that writer? John the Revelator, who's that writer? John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seals. You know, God walked out in the cool of the day, called Adam by his name. He refused to answer, cause he wasn't naked and ashamed. Tell me who's that right? John the Revelator. John the Revelator, who's that writer? John the Revelator wrote the book of the Seven Seas. Now Christ had twelve apostles, three led away. He said, watch for me one hour, while I go yonder and pray. Tell me who's that writer? John the Revelator, who's that writer? John the Revelator, tell me who's that writer? John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seas.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.